Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. Please open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4 as we continue our overview of this great closing book of the New Testament, a picture of the future, and also a statement about God's victorious reign and the assurance that he gets the final word. I hope you're encouraged in these few weeks we have together. Marco Polo's mother named him such after Mark the gospel writer, in hopes that he would always tell the gospel truth. But 13th century Europeans found it impossible to believe Marco's tales of faraway lands. He claimed that he traveled through Russia, through Afghanistan, through Persia, through the Himalayas. He was the first European to enter a land called China, He became a favorite of the ruler at that time, the most powerful ruler in the world, the Kublai Khan. The Khan's palace was so massive that even the dining room of that palace would seat 6,000 people at a dinner, each being able to eat off a a plate of pure gold. Marco saw the world's first paper money in his travels. He marveled at the explosive power of gunpowder. He became the first Italian to taste the Chinese culinary invention, pasta. Maybe you're surprised at that. After serving Kublai Khan for 17 years, he returned home to Venice, loaded down with gold and silk and spices. And when he arrived home, people dismissed him. They would not believe his stories of this mythical place called China. His family priest rebuked him for spinning lies. And even at his deathbed, his family and friends, his priest, begged him to recant his tales of China. And his response was, I have not told you half of what I saw. Some 1,300 years before Marco Polo wrote about China, another man, The Apostle John went on an amazing journey to heaven itself. There are the faithless today who question the reality of John's testimony. They will scoff at such ideas that we're considering uh, as we look at Revelation chapter 4. But we have two chapters in front of us that we're not able to absorb completely in just a few minutes together. But what we can do, uh, we must spend enough time here that we leave here wanting to be better worshipers than we've ever been before. Remember, the Apostle John is shown this picture to write these things down, to be an encouragement in this first century, at the end of the first century, when so much persecution was being executed against believers, those who believed fully in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. They, 
God wants them to know through the Apostle John's experience that God knows exactly what's going on and he is the ultimate triumphant one. It's the same encouragement we need today in all the kinds of experiences in life that we deal with as well. So to prompt us about this matter of worship, we're going to, we're going to re, re-see what John saw. And of all these things, in the, three, in the two chapters of chapter 4 and 5, we see three things that help us in our understanding of the wonder of worship. We see a throne, we see a scroll, and we see a lamb. So, this door to heaven is opened, chapter 1 says. And in the spirit, John sees inside, and what he sees is stunning. And his, ma, his eyes move to the centerpiece of all that's before him. And what he sees just captures him. So here's, here's chapter 4. Follow along. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open to heaven, And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat on it there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. And from the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were crowned with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. It's a fascinating chapter to read. So John is captivated by this the picture on the, of the throne, of the centerpiece of heaven. Now, some people will ask me, is this, is this what heaven is going to be like when we get there? Is, are we going to see these same things? And I don't know the answer to that. Revelation has a lot of questions to it. Remember, Luke reminded us last week that much of Revelation is very symbolic. So I don't think necessarily literally this is what we're going to see. It's giving us an idea of the atmosphere of heaven. He's trying to help John and us understand the glory, the radiance of the person there, of the worship that is happening there, and the experience of being in that particular place. So let's let's go back to chapter 4, and I've highlighted all the ways that the throne is described in the text. So at the beginning, we have on the throne, 
one who is not described. Do we have the whole text here? There we go. On the throne, the one on the throne had the appearance of jasper and ruby. Now, before we get there, the, the one on the throne isn't really described, is he? Maybe because God himself is indescribable. And how do you really put him in terms? That Paul writes early in the New Testament, he's beyond tracing out who can understand him. But John does notice that the one on the throne had the appearance of jasper and ruby. Jasper is a clear gem. It's, something, it's diamond-like that we learn later in Revelation, actually. And uh, the second stone, a ruby, it's called different things, carnelian in some other translations, but it is a ruby in color representing redemption itself, the blood of Christ poured out for us. Now, it is intriguing that in the Old Testament scriptures, when we hear about the high priest and his special garments that he has, that on uh, appearing on, on his chest, that breast piece there had 12 stones. The first stone was jasper, and the last one was ruby. Those 12 stones represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And the, the ruby and the jasper being the first and last, they also represent the first and last letters of the Hebrew alphabet, the Aleph and Tav, which correspond to the Greek alphabet, the Alpha and Omega, a title for Jesus in the very first chapter of Revelation. So it's a marvelous thing how God has woven these pieces together. Now back to our text. Also, uh, encircling the throne, it says was an was an, a, an emerald rainbow. Um, we think of rainbows as a half circle, but this particular rainbow was complete. And it wasn't multicolored like the former rainbow that we're first introduced to in Genesis when God hangs that bow in the air as an indication of that he will no longer destroy the earth by, fire, by, by water when Noah and his family came out of the ark. Also, that, that bow in the air that we enjoy today, that we find still stunning, all, the, all the, these many, many centuries later, and captivates us, is a, is a statement of a covenant God, a covenant God who is true to the promises that he's made. He's promised us life everlasting. Therefore, this emerald color around the, around the throne, all about life and the everlasting life that comes from being obedient to Jesus Christ and surrendering to him. And then we have surrounding the throne, 24 other thrones on which were 24 elders. Now there are many ideas about probably 10 or 12 different ideas on who these people are that are sitting on the throne. But my, my own conclusion is that, and I, 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 this is only my opinion. If you have another opinion, you are happy to hold it. And I'm just telling you what my opinion is. These represent the 12 patriarchs of the Old Testament. That is the 12 tribes of Israel because they represent Israel as a nation. The other 12 are the 12 apostles. So together, they represent all the people of God. Those under the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, those under the New Covenant in this age of the cross, of the church, around the throne of God. And we are part of that assembly as well, represented by these 24, the people of God. Then we have, from the throne, come flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And if you walk through the scriptures before, you'll remember that when Moses, God's man, went up 
to meet with God on Mount Sinai, what happened? There was lightning, there was thunder, there was rumbling because of the majesty of God that descended upon the mountain and when he gave the law to his servant Moses. And then we have in front of the throne are these seven lamps blazing, which simply represent the fullness of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that God gives us when we are immersed into Jesus Christ. It's a promised gift that he gives us to help us live a victorious life so that we will not miss the day when Christ comes back and we get to be at the throne. We're going to celebrate the entire Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for eternity because of the roles they play and seeing that our redemption is complete and full when we're around the throne of God. And then in front of the throne also was an immense sea like glass, which speaks of God's transcendence, his unapproachability. It also suggests to me, you know, the sea in ancient days was very ominous. It was very threatening. There was, the sea was mysterious to people. They didn't know what to do with it. They didn't know what to think about it. And often we see the, uh, the, the apostles, you know, they're, they're shuddering in fear just on the little lake, the Sea of Galilee, a lake, you know, when these storms come up. Uh, we have Jonah and his story. We, we, just, we just studied. Uh, the sea in ancient days was just a threatening place. But here before the throne of God, there is no threat. There's no there, there, there is no reason because he says to his people, peace, be still. And we are able to, in the midst of true worship, be calm within because of the sea that surrounds him. And around the throne are four living creatures, which is a better translation. If you still use the King James Version, it will say beasts, which is... <laughs> I don't care for a word like that when I'm reading the Bible. Living creatures is better, but really the best translation is living beings. They're living beings. In other words, created by God around the throne. And these creatures have six wings. And that parallels the picture, the scene that Isaiah the prophet is given in Isaiah 6 when he sees the train of the robe of the Lord fill the temple. And you remember in that place also is the praise, holy, holy, holy. And there, there are seraphs. Seraph, that's the seraphim, which is plural to seraph. Seraph means uh, to burn. And so these are some kind of fiery, uh, fire angelic beings around the throne are covered with eyes, suggesting that their eyes are always focused upon the glory, the holiness, the greatness of who God is. They have six wings, suggesting um, that they, that according to Isaiah's vision, with two they cover their eyes and two they cover their feet, with two they're flying. I, I suppose that's the same thing John is seeing here as well. And so in other words, they're covering themselves because they are exposed to the holiness and the brilliance of God and it's too much for them. And so they are simply protecting themselves from the sheer beauty of who God is. And two, they're flying. In other words, they are, they are moving about doing whatever the Lord is bidding them to do. And then we have these four living beings. And notice, it doesn't say it's actually a lion, actually an ox, actually a man, actually an eagle. It's, he says it's something like, which suggests to me that it is more focused on the attribute of these living beings than the living beings themselves. There was something there like a lion. Which suggests to us, first of all, he's the, the kingly beast of the wild animals. 
um, it, it suggests to me a, a kind of perhaps majestic power. And then we have the ox. Perhaps we could see the ox as the strongest of domesticated animals, um, known for strength and labor. We have man there, something, some being like a man, suggesting that man's intelligence and leadership and volition being there at the throne. And then we have the eagle and his soaring swiftness around the throne, also doing the bidding of God. It suggests to me the psalmist that says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord around the throne of God. What a beautiful picture this is of the glory of God. You know, when we read this, I mean, we wonder at it, don't we? Imagine John's experience as John wonders at this, same, at this same scene that he actually gets to see and tries to put in words that we could understand. You know, it's a tragic thing to lose a sense of wonder. We were created to wonder. We were created to think beyond ourselves and to think largely. And, and, and the older we get, it seems like we, we, need, we need more things to give us wonder. In fact, I want to suggest to you that our worship demands wonder. If there's nothing that ever moves you in a worship service, if there's never any music that lifts you above the mundane, if there's never any emotion that is moved within you, if there's never a truth that rattles your cage and you just are agog about God, his grace, his glory, his goodness, his kindness, his long-suffering, what he's done for us. You have to examine your heart. We need to wonder. That's, that's one of the necessities of worship. Ravi Zacharias speaks of this. He says, if I were telling my children the same fairy tale, notice the different reactions. If I took Sarah at age eight and said to her, Sarah, little Tommy got up and walked to the door and opened the door and a dragon jumped in front of Tommy, Sarah's eyes would go wide. If I were telling little Naomi, age four, the same story, I may say, Naomi, little Tommy got up, walked to the door and opened the door. And Naomi's eyes would get wide with wonder. And then, and then he tells Nathan, age two, Nathan, little Tommy got up and walked up to the door. And Nathan's eyes gets wide with amazement. And Ravi concludes this. You see the difference? Sarah needed the dragon. Naomi needed to open the door. For Nathan, it was a pretty big deal just to walk to the door. The older you get the more it takes to fill your heart with wonder. And only God is big enough to fill it. And so we worship him. And I trust that you felt a great joy in being able to say in community, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is. Someone said this, if worship is just one thing we do. Everything becomes mundane. But if worship is the one thing we do, everything takes on eternal significance. See, worship is a relationship we have with the living God every day. It's not limited to a, a few moments of contemplating a, a corporate worship, assembling together. Now John turns his attention to the scroll. 
Verse 1, chapter 5 says, Then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Now, this is uh, maybe something like it. I don't know exactly what it looked like, but it's, it's an odd thing for a scroll to be written on on both sides. They didn't do that. You couldn't write on the reverse side because the, the plant that's made from, uh, it, 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 it really looks like celery or... Um, or rhubarb, so it's really striated, and it's very difficult to write on the reverse side. But this particular scroll is written on both sides, suggesting that it is overflowing with information, that we have to find a way to get it on the scroll. Not only that, but the text says it has seven seals. In ancient Rome, uh, a will and a testament had to be notarized by seven different witnesses, and then their seal, wax seal, put on it, and only a certain person qualified to open it. So John sees this scroll, and he's concerned about it. The scroll, we don't know exactly what, but it seems what it's suggesting. It's the, it's the, it's the will of God for the earth. It's history being unfolded. And it's a picture of God's intention to see that everything climaxes. Everything comes to a fulfillment. And nothing is left out. But not anybody, just anybody, can open the scroll. Uh, here's what verses 2 and 4 say. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven and on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. History is littered with all kinds of conquerors who died with shattered dreams because they never could establish the utopia they thought they could in their own strength. Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar and Hitler and Saddam Hussein and so many others. Who is worthy? Who is worthy to hold the deed to the earth? Washington? I don't think so. No one in Moscow, no one in London or Baghdad or Kabul or Tel Aviv or Tokyo. No, none of those can... can Deliver us from our issues, our brokenness, our problems. There have always been plenty of people who are willing to, but nobody worthy to. No wonder John wept. No wonder he wept and wept because he didn't know what was going to happen. So as this apostle, the old apostle, it's 96 AD, he's an old man now, as tears, as tears are just flowing down his weather-beaten face, one of the elders got up and said, Do not weep. See, the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Oh my, what, what a scene. Are you mesmerized by these words? I, I, every time I've read and read and read, I try to get a better glimpse of what this is all about. The Lord Jesus is able to rule the world. He is able to be the Lord of all. And if he can rule the world, and if he can hold all of human history in his hands because of redemption, does he, don't you know he can hold your life in his hands? Don't you know he can accomplish whatever he has for you in any way he wants? 
If he can be in charge and be Lord over the nations of the world. You know, so often we, we let anything else override us and lead us and try, try to triumph over us. Our emotions or our, our opinions or the opinions of other people or our business, our career, our bank account. Oh my, if God is able and says in Christ to accomplish his purposes, he will do that in your life as well. Because he is God's solution for the world. He's a solution for your life. Only this person is worthy to open the scroll and read. Is someone who paid the price to redeem you and me. And to redeem the world. And the people in your life who are far off from him. He died for them as well. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lion of Judah. He is the one who is kingly. That's what it means. He's the Lion of Judah. He's the one, only one qualified to occupy the throne. He's also the root of David. David was promised that his throne would be an eternal throne. And this is the one that is able to be here and, and, and worthy to undo the scroll. So John, John, his tears stop. And he's encouraged. And he turns expecting to see a lion. But instead... He sees a lamb. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, representing all the omnipotence and the omniscience of who he is which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He sent, went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. John uses the word lamb 30 times in Revelation. In fact, outside of Revelation, the word lamb in the New Testament is only used seven times. That's all. It's such a key word in the Old Testament, but not in the New Testament. Until we get to Revelation, 30 times. And the word that John uses here for lamb is not the typical word for lamb. This is not the typical Greek word for lamb. There are a couple of words. This is arnion, arnion, and it means little lamb. And what that does, it, it emphasizes the vulnerability of this one who's on the throne. When John sees this lamb, here's this lamb. He knows it's been slain. It must have a scar at its neck. It's obviously been slain, and yet it's standing because this lamb came alive again. This is a special lamb. And so, here is the lamb of God, slain from before the foundation of the world, worthy to take this scroll and open it, worthy to. He is the one who makes the unfolding of God's entire redeeming plan for the world and its inhabitants, that makes, means you and me, so possible. Do you know that today? Do you, do you realize that a, deep, a great price has been paid that we may have life and have this experience in a place called heaven around the throne of God? We will not be worthy to be there except by the blood of Jesus Christ. So he's worthy. And that's why we love the cross. It's an odd thing to love and to cherish, but we do. Because it's at the cross, the Lamb of God is slain, 
And in him we have life everlasting. So John relates the atmosphere then of pure worship. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Have you taken worship lightly, lately? Has it become just routine to you, a corporate assembly? What about your private worship outside the public time when you're just at home and spending time reflecting on the scriptures or in prayer, in meditation? Have you been captivated lately again by the beauty, the opportunity to bless the name of the Lord? About, the, about 30 years ago, the Smithsonian displayed an exhibit entitled, The Throne of the Third Heaven of the Nation's Millennium General Assembly. <laughs> kind of a mouthful, isn't it? All the items in the display were put together by a man by the name of James Hampton. This is it. James Hampton was a janitor in the D.C. area. He simply wanted to depict God's throne room. This extraordinary collection had been found, was found in his garage after he died in 1964. And no one knew he had been working on it for 20 years. All these pieces that make up this display were made from cast off items, common items, like old furniture and gold and aluminum foil and, and um, store displays and uh, cigarette boxes and bottles and wine bottles and rolls of kitchen foil and used light bulbs and cardboard and insulation board and construction paper and desk blotters and sheets of transparent plastic all precariously put together by glue and tacks and pins. On a bulletin board in the garage, he put Proverbs 29:18, where there is no vision the people perish. He believed people needed a vision of the glory of God. So he set out single-handedly to give it to them. Now, we don't know much about James Hampton. We don't know much about his spiritual journey. But what we do know is, is that he imagined God's throne and what he imagined became a national treasure. What's your life look like? 
you have a pretty ordinary life. My guess is your, your life's pretty ordinary like mine. You know, we do what we have to do every day. We check our calendars. We go to our appointments. We have the people in our lives, friends, family, responsibilities, bills to pay. You know, we do our business running here. We serve people in different ways. Now, lots of different things go on. We're very different, and yet we're very much alike. But what I want you to know tonight, for all of you at home, Whatever is happening, you have the ingredients in your life to be a throne of worship for God. Because worship isn't a particular place. It doesn't, it's not a place you go to in order to do. It's not something that's compartmentalized sometime that you set aside to do all of life is a relationship with the Almighty God through Jesus Christ, empowered by His Spirit. And He is a master at taking whatever is common and weaving those together. And when all of our lives, every piece is devoted to the glory and the goodness of God, there you have a throne because there you have a worshiper. And that can happen to any of us. For any of us who are willing to worship before the throne of God, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You are worthy. You are worthy to receive glory and honor and power. Amen. Oh, God, we thank you for the lamb that was slain. We thank you for this glimpse you've given us into your holy presence. And I pray none of us tonight will miss that day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And we will be welcomed unto yourself to reside forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. It's our desire for you to grow in your understanding of Christ's love as you partner with us in our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you have any questions about our church or would like to plan a visit with us, go to plainfieldchristian.com. If you would like to receive our podcast every week, we encourage you to subscribe to the Plainfield Christian Church podcast on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.